hello, beautiful listeners. I'm Kohar. And I'm Iman. And you're tuned into the first episode of Name It. Your encyclopedia of big ideas changing how we think about the world and talk to each other. And today, our big idea is, drumroll please. Name it! You heard that right. We're breaking down Name It. Today, we're going meta. I mean, meta. Deep into the layers of our soul. (laughs) Not only are we going to talk about what it means to name, name it, but we're also going to talk about the political function of naming and titling things in general. So basically, we're naming what it means to name, name it. Yes. And that is what I like to call a coharism. But as always, before we get into our big idea and all of the coharisms that are sure to come. We're going to start with our case study. So the case study is the segment of our show where we introduce the big idea by talking about an instance where we see it playing out in our everyday lives, research, and current events. Yes. And so our case study today is turning to our everyday lives, and we're talking about how Name It came to be. You heard that right. Once again, it has such a beautiful story a genesis that honestly, as I want to clear the air, as a non-podcast listener, you know, initially, I think the story of how this podcast came to be is one that you are all going to love to hear. And that's going to contextualize all the beautiful episodes we've already Mm pre-recorded for you. So Iman, you want to kind of share a little bit about your perspective as the I am an avid podcast listener. I have been, I listened to my first podcast in 2015, the classic one that everybody knows, The Read. And like from there, I I listen, honestly, I can say I listen to more podcasts than I do music. Like it calms me. And the reason why I wanted to do this podcast with you is because for me as a podcast listener, I am so drawn into friendship dynamics. What brings me to a podcast is when I can hear like in the voices and in the relationships between hosts that there are love, that they respect each other, that they can disagree, that they can have intense, deep, thoughtful conversations and that there's just all love there. And I couldn't imagine doing this with someone who is more lovable than Kohara Vakyan. You're going to make me cry. Well, I'm just so honored because honestly, I think I never really appreciated the transformative power of sound Mm -hmm. to truly transcend borders of time and space and to reach broad audiences. For example, in the classroom, to teach or to take not even just take the place of a book, but to disseminate that information and that knowledge even further and to kind of break all the boundaries that we think confine us. And I think you led me to so many of those deep realizations throughout the process. And I'm so excited for us to get into that deeper and to have a really open conversation with our listeners. Thank you so much for everyone who's tuning in so far, because we wanted to break the fourth wall here today and say that, as we said, we've pre-recorded season one for the most part across the past one and a half years or so. Since that moment of your first big idea of name it and right from the inception. And I feel like, though, too, like what you said, like the idea for like sound and the classroom and teaching like orality, you and I like didn't just start this a year and a half ago. I met Kohar when I was 18 at Dartmouth College. I was 
it's like everybody already knew who you were. And I remember just having such admiration for you, for all of the work you were doing with the Native American community at Dartmouth. Like you were president of the Native Americans at Dartmouth. And at the time, I was also president of the Afro-American Society. And I just so deeply admired you. And we were always friends and became deeper friends our senior year. And even though we were always in the same circles, just like as black women and women mm -hmm. of color holding each other down in the pits of white supremacy in New Hampshire. <laughs> but like those same ideas, like I just remember constantly like sitting in dorm rooms with each other, just naming all the things that were going on, naming what it meant to be who we were, where we were. And that was survival. Us being able to name what we were living through and what we were experiencing was a means of survival for us in those spaces. And like we exchanged different survival tools. Mm. And that was the inception of what exactly I wanted to do with a podcast to pass on these tools, to not just keep them in dorm rooms, in between each other with intimate conversations, not just reserve them to the classroom and the Ivy Tower, because we weren't just using the ideas that we picked up from books and our classes. We were talking about things that we had learned from our families, from our sisters, from our mothers, from our friends, from so many people in our lives. So our grandmothers. Our grandmothers. I think this is her an, soul. Rest in power. Yeah. This is such for me, there's a whole story that we're gonna get into when we interview each other, but the whole genesis and the arc of not just the knowledge, but the stakes and the intention behind what we're doing here is mm -hmm. I think for the next seven generations, first of all, thank you, by the way, for that beautiful reflection from Dartmouth Times, because I think what we were talking about time earlier, it's like we have to think about time in this long sense. Mm -hmm. And of course, I believe this has been a work in progress since before we were born, really. I believe Absolutely. that if we're going to think deep and meta. Mm -hmm. But I really believe, like, as you said, in those dorm rooms, and outside of the classroom, especially at Dartmouth, I'm thinking about a lot of the Black women, which we will pay tribute to mm. in this podcast, who literally helped us survive and name what it means to live at the intersection. Truly. And I think truly. that is exactly what we're trying to do here. Yeah. What thanks to you and your vision and your foresight for the future are enabling here. We're so emotional today. I can feel it because... We just have to say this is one of the last episodes we're recording because you are supposed to, as we've been taught, record or write the introduction last because it's going to be a time where we can really connect and see not only what's missing, but what we are so excited to pour into this in the future. Yeah. The love that awaits all the good, positive energy and good medicine that literally uplifts us every single day. Truly. And that is who you are, Iman. Aw, that's who you are, Co. That reminds me, like, speaking of all of, like, this didn't just start with us, but, like, specifically thinking about, like, our time in undergrad. Like, last semester when I was going through a hard time, you gifted me a book that Black upperclassmen women gave to us with different poetry, Sadia, Yo Malice, all these people wrote for us, like, tips and wise words to carry us through our time there. And 10 years later, Kohar gifted those words and the words of people who have lifted up and support us to get me through a hard time. And I'm mm -hmm. just I'm grateful. And I hope that my intention with this podcast is even though we have already pre-recorded the different ideas, like we've got the erotic, we've got safe harbors, audiotopia, the wake, 
these are all ideas that are like timeless and that change the way we think about time as not linear progress, but are also these episodes people can return to time and time again and pass on to their loved ones as their own survival tools. Mm, I love that. And I see this podcast in that same exact way for myself as a reminder, as a grounding anchor, as a a vision of the bigger picture Mm -hmm. and a sound clip of that, what that future could look like. I think sound is like, like we were saying, that transformative potential that who knows where this will reach? Who knows, you know, if you're hearing these words in the future and we're speaking to you. We are so excited to have you here with us in a community. And we mean that because we come from communities that roll deep, deep. Don't worry, as we kind of sift through where we know from and who we are, we could not be here today without that love of our communities and our families, especially. Yeah. And already the community that we're already forming on our social media at Name It Pod, you can find us on all social media, just all the support we've already gotten. You know, social media is two days, two days, just two two days. days. We have announced that we are doing this. Even though the idea I first came up with in the summer of 21, we had a whole different title then. It was going to be called Undisciplined. That was taken because there's like 12 freaking podcasts called Undisciplined. And we were constantly searching. I mean, let me tell you, I would try to get Kohar to finalize a name and she would literally another Koharism. It will come to us. Yeah. You can't rush it. You cannot rush creativity. I always say that because... The best work comes in moments when you least expect it often, unfortunately, often around like moments of crisis and pain and these Mm -hmm. difficult times. But at the same time, I think divine timing always will lead you to where you need to go. And if there isn't a more nuanced process than making a podcast that'll show you exactly that lesson. Yeah. And so We are just so excited to be in community with you all and to build this community, you know, and also too, what I'm so excited for, like in the future is to take ideas and recommendations from you guys. That's right. You are a listener right now. I'm talking to you. Send us an idea you want us to take on and we're going to do the research and reading on it so you don't have to. But, you know, we've selected ideas this season, but like we weren't able to do everything like we weren't able to name everything to, you know, speak in real time to certain things that are going on right now in the world, things that are so important to our own communities. But regardless, I think that these terms and these ideas are are evergreen. They're always present. I love that. Evergreen. Evergreen. I just made a playlist called Evergreen, actually. Does that also have 700 songs on it? Actually, Iman's rubbing off on me because my playlists are getting shortener. (laughs) Who makes a 700 song playlist? I told you, they just build from time. They accumulate. But like, why don't you make like separate playlists? I do from those. You see? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You'll hear more about that in our Audiotopia episode. But stay tuned. And without further ado... We are going to get into our next few segments and kind of break down what this podcast will be like as you kind of dive into the future episodes that Iman has just kind of quickly, you mentioned a couple episodes, but we have a lot more ready for you and so many more exciting things to come. Yeah. Listen, let me tell you, in these podcasts, in these case studies, like we're giving you history. We're giving you stories. We're giving you... (laughs) 
deep looks into our souls. And we Comedy. Ain't even, we ain't even charging money for those looks into our souls. <laughs> for free. For free. We are putting ourselves out there and, and being vulnerable, but that is the process of academia in itself. And let's also say, for those who don't know, Kohar and I are also PhD students. We should have probably started with that, but that's fine. But do you want to know what I think is so important for both of us is we are who we are because we just are who we are. And that is what has led us to being PhD students. And exactly. being students didn't lead us to what we're studying and what's important to us. Who we are, where we come from has led us to that point. So I think it only makes sense that we started off with a little bit of, of this process. So, But I am a PhD student. I'm in religious studies and African-American studies here at Yale. I'm in my third year. Kohar and I are both about to be candidates. I'm speaking that into existence. Yes, we are. Let me tell you something. Right now, we are both going through our qualifying exams. And for those who don't know, that is where we compile three to four lists. And on each of those lists, there's like 30 to 100 books. And then we get tested on it to determine that we are experts in our field. But our fields for us are often very much so related to who we are and where we come from. So all I'm going to say is even without reading those books, we are experts in it and we've been preparing our whole lives for these moments. So that's my little pep talk as we go and get through it. And in the same way, you are all experts and you can all bring in so many needed interventions when it comes to these topics that clearly not all knowledge is written. And we understand coming from communities where oral history sound and speaking to one another face to face is actually where history is made and shared. And I think especially for me, I'm going to do a little quick introduction as not only, as you said, an Armenian black and Nipmuc woman, but also being a descendant of genocide survivors. I think I always understood how important it was to record testimony. Mm. And I use that word because I know people don't always see history as testimony. People also don't always prioritize or think that oral history is as important as written text. And mm. this podcast is our way of saying we could not exist without oral history, mm -hmm. without sound, without stories. And our whole attempt at putting this together and at sharing a piece of our souls and who we are, mm -hmm. which we're about to dive into yeah. in our little interview segment of each other. Yeah, we really... We couldn't, this podcast, as we said, it just could not exist. And you couldn't all be listening to us without those oral histories. Yeah. It's as simple as that. That folks have passed on to us. So now we are going to get into our second segment of the show, which is TLDR. So TLDR stands for Too Long, Didn't Read. And that's the part of our show where we do the reading so you don't have to. And today's TLDR segment will be slightly different from our future episodes, which are mainly drawing from books and articles and tweets and other, you know, texts, as you might call them. Mm -hmm. We are sharing an oral history of us, who we are and where we know from. Yeah. And, you know, like you mentioned in other episodes, we do primarily center ideas from books, articles and tweets. That's not to say that those ideas aren't also prevalent in our lived experiences and our own histories, as Kohar said. But for us, it was important to start with an oral history in our own biographies because we know not all knowledge is written, but it's all lived. Period. 
this bridge called my back as we're going to dive into they said that first. Mm. No, they did not say that first. Let me say that. They said it <laughs> and we live it. Yeah. Well, that's I mean, the idea of like lived experience as knowledge that is like a core fund of Patricia Hill Collins. Like that is exactly. uh, Barbara Smith. That is Barbara Christian. That is a pure fundamental belief of black feminism. That the political is profoundly personal and vice versa. And as such, as we're talking about naming and how the political is profoundly personal, I think to start off this whole conversation about naming, I think it's important to note that, as I mentioned earlier, naming has a very political function. As we know, being an Mm -hmm. Armenian more than anything, Mm -hmm. the word genocide is one of the most striking examples, and not just being Armenian, being Black and Native, and seeing those three things in conversation, those three communities in conversation with one another. You see how the word genocide, though, is taken up as a political statement and is in the same way highly denied Mm -hmm. as a name. Mm -hmm. And in the same way that New York Times and different news media outlets will call a genocide a war. Mm. Like the invasion of Artsakh by Azerbaijan, backed by Turkey in 2020 to the present. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for me to just use this time right now. Say there's a 38-day blockade in Artsakh as we speak, where Azerbaijan is cutting off all supplies. And it'll be even longer by the time this comes out. Exactly. Naming has such the political power to name the United States of America. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Native people preceded this existence Mm -hmm. of the state. Mm -hmm. And I think as such, we did not just come to being as who we are. We were named. Mm -hmm. You become named Mm -hmm. and you become your name often. Mm -hmm. And I often think about that, like where colonialism, Mm -hmm. you cannot have colonialism and genocide without renaming, Mm -hmm. without overwriting Mm -hmm. the history of names, whether you're talking about place names of a river, whether you're talking about a person who becomes an artifact Mm -hmm. and is now, for example, in a museum. And I'm talking about indigenous remains. It's important that we pay attention to the language we use. So as such, Iman, that was a long introduction to the question I have for you. Can you tell the story of your name? Yeah. Who you are. Right. And how you got that. So my full name is Iman Abdul Karim. And I think I was really relating to what you were saying, like your names being taken away from you, our names and our ancestors' names being taken away, the power of naming something as genocide or way that you can discount something by misnaming it when it comes to the genocide in Armenia and native genocides, but also the power that naming can reclaim your power. And that is a really important part of Black Muslim history. You know, the Nation of Islam took on X. When a lot of Black Muslims convert, they take on new names. So my dad actually chose our last name. Like his first name was originally like Bob Carter. Now he's Abdul Rahim, Abdul Kareem. I am Iman Abdul Kareem. And my name Iman means faith. But I say Iman, not Iman, because I think that, again, Iman, not Iman, because that pronunciation of Iman, I like to consider like a very like black Muslim pronunciation and not just an Arabic pronunciation, even though Iman, Iman, Iman in Arabic being faith, one of the pillars of Islam is just really important to me. And also, too, when I tell people my name, it constantly invites conversation. It racializes me in a particular way. It confuses people. It invites conversation good and bad, threatening and non-threatening, supportive and unsupportive. 
in a way that's been really interesting. Fun fact, I actually had to change my name when I was nine years old because they were given my name. And of course, you know, just some like little like blatant, even though it's a little undercover Islamophobia. Effed up my birth certificate. They put Abdul. No, they put Abdul as my middle name and Kareem as my last name. Mm-hmm. So I had to get my name changed. I have name change papers because they messed up because I guess Abdul Kareem is just too complicated for whoever put that in in Northeast Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Northeast Ohio. We forgot to mention where we're from. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes, I'm from Akron, Ohio. The Dirty 330, a.k.a. Rowdy. Amazing. That was such a beautiful reflection on names. What about you, Boo? You, you made me think of that one poem that's like to the girls with heavy names. And I mm. think we both relate to the heavy, what what could be a heavy name. Mm-hmm. I think growing up, my name, you know what? The reason I wanted to do this episode, my name is Kohar Zovik Avakian. Mm-hmm. People hearing this might be like, oh, I thought you were Kohar. And that's my assimilated name. That's my Western Americanized mm-hmm. name. And I think so many people whether you're Armenian, (laughs) whether you have any type of ethnic name, can relate to the heaviness of what a name can feel like. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I think it's really important that we see the opposite side. All the names that have been erased, whether you're talking about our Black ancestors, and I Mm -hmm. love how you said how naming is a form of reclaiming. Mm -hmm. I think if I'm thinking about the story of my full name, first of all, a lot of my friends know I'm Kohad. It means gem in Armenian. That's my tagline. But my last name is actually a given name. And Mm. it bears a whole history of migration that I didn't even know until grad school. And Mm. I think what more reveals how political naming is, yet how invisible that political nature can be. Mm -hmm. So basically, and I hope I'm getting the story right, because the reason I think it's so funny is how casual and nonchalant I heard this story And that's how most stories come, I think. Mm -hmm. Whether you're sitting down people like this for an interview or you just simply are like, "Uh, what's the story of her name? My hokur, love her soul, my Sunday school teacher, my Armenian teacher, my dad's. And hokur means that's my dad's sister. She um, was like, oh, yes, our last name used to be Khadush. She said Khadushyan. I think my dad said Khadushanyan. So I would have been Kohar Khadushanyan or Khadushyan because Apparently, there are two memory versions of that name. And I think it's really deep that the old name survived Mm -hmm. in memory. Yet it's also a deep thing that it was forgotten until now. Mm. And I think when we're thinking about indigenous people in this country, about black people in this country, so many of our names, whether it's the names of our ancestral tongues, our languages, every facet of our culture has been stripped. Mm Yet, that doesn't mean names, new vocabulary hasn't been created to reclaim. So I think our names are both examples of what it means to unapologetically reclaim who you are on your own terms. Mm -hmm. And I think, Iman, if there's anyone that brings more faith to anyone's day, it's you. So you reflect and you become your name. And you gem. You shine bright like a diamond. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Amazing. Yeah. And that Kohar brings me to a question I want to ask you, which you shared to me. And I know you got it from someone and you'll tell us who you got it from. But I had my students today in class start off their intros by 
answering the question, where do you know from? And that's because I got that from you and your amazing teaching skills. And that's because I got it from Professor Wexler and her amazing teaching skills. Amazing. <laughs> and that's because she got it from Eugenia, doctor, I would say, Eugenia Zorowski, mm. or Zorowski, who came up with this question, where do you know from, as a means to kind of spatially place your knowledge. Mm. And also, I think, to hold space for the myriad ways that knowledge can reach you, whether it's through sound, whether it's through a conversation like mm -hmm. with your friend, a book you read. I think it's a beautiful question. And I actually also use it in the classroom with my students. And I find that it opens up the world of knowledge to be more than just from a book, too. I think, where mm -hmm. do you know from is such a deep question. Mm -hmm. So where do I know from? Just from, I've already even mentioned all of the beautiful people, but definitely my family. I come from a huge Black Native and Armenian family, as I said. And I think the beautiful thing about my family, and honestly, shout out to them, who our story is going to be featured in a real life book that's coming out in March. We are all Armenian. It's an anthology of Armenian writers edited by Adam Marjoyan, just to give us a shout out. But I think our family story will be featured there. And more than anything, I think it really encapsulates how I learn and the story behind how that chapter even came to be. Yeah, I wrote this article and honestly, let me break that fourth wall. I have a lot of knowledge. I have a lot of energy. And sometimes it can expand so much. And I think in these past years, I'm just learning how to really transmute, translate and channel it into mm creation into art into something that can be a teaching experience mm -hmm. so in june 2020 which i'm pretty sure everyone can locate like where they were what they were doing are all black people mm -hmm. i think mm -hmm. especially i was driven to write an article called reparations in the armenian weekly as a means to really tie together all my communities and fuse our struggles as one and i think that article really took place like in the middle of a difficult time and I didn't even understand who it would reach, what it would do. And I will locate that time as being so transformative to what I'm doing even now. It led so many people to my social media in general and Twitter. And of course, like I said, so much art can come through pain and crisis like we all know. But at the same time, I think it was the first time I realized how good people can be. Mm. how loving and supportive and caring and listening. And I think people-to-people -people knowledge and face-to-face, -face, every single interaction, whether it was in virtual space or in real life, because we were living on the web. It was a scary time, transformed how I know and how I come to know. Mm. And you see that today, whether mm. it's with this article that really was infused with oral history interviews I took back in college. Mm. So think about that full arc of knowledge that we're thinking of. Yeah. You can see that every single person that like touched me, uplifted me, motivated me to just keep on that path truly led me to the most recent and my first publication ever in March, um, but also just the way I write and come to know and explore my art. So yes, that's that's my She's answer. Published. For you. She's published. She's <laughs> published. You know who else is published? Oh, Iman Abdul Karim. Oh God. Oh God. Yeah. You know, this year I'm I'm gonna channel changing my relationship to writing. You are an amazing writer. 
Okay, so turning to you, Iman, as you pose this question to me, I would love to hear a little bit more about your own, not only your intellectual genealogy, but Mm -hmm. how you come to know what you know. Where do you know from? Yeah. So I think about this question as also like what brought me here to this moment to studying Islam, studying blackness as a profession, as an academic, as a member of communities that I study. And I remember my freshman winter, I saw a class being offered by Zahra Ayubi, and it was called Gender and Islam. And in that class, we read this book called American Muslim Women Negotiating Race, Class, and Gender Within the Ummah. And it was by Jamila Kareem. It was an ethnography on Black Muslim women and Muslim women of color. And for the first time, I was like, oh my God, like I see so much of my lived experience. And like, here's this author, like theorizing about it, making these large critiques about gender and male religious authority and combining Islam with black feminist thought. And I was like, oh my God, it was like, like my mind just exploded because before I went to college, so I'm black, I'm Muslim. I grew up in Northeast Ohio, but I went to a Muslim school up until I was 13 years old. And in that Muslim school, me and my siblings were the only black students and a predominantly. And so the school was in a mosque. It was like a mega mosque in the burbs, predominantly South Asian, you know, Desi and Arab. But my dad was the leader of the black mosque downtown. And so like even just in that different spatial geographies. So like, for example, our mosque downtown used to be a movie theater back in the day when every black neighborhood had its own movie theater. And so even the fact that like that space, it was called the Akron Masjid, was this like space that was based in a black community and was for black Muslims. Like there's a huge history of black Muslims coming, you know, coming through the Great Migration and the religious racial movements up into Ohio. But like my whole life, I had navigated what I didn't realize then was the, the like intertwining and intersections of race and religion in black communities and communities of color. And so, yeah, I read that book and I was like, oh, my God, like here is this book describing experiences of where I know from and like my own lived experiences. And at that same time, when we were in undergrad, Black Lives Matter was popping off. I was like getting more into I was a women and gender studies major. And so I did all these interviews with Muslim women in the Black Lives Matter movement. And that is also published an edited volume called Race, Religion and Black Lives Matter. Essays on a movement in a moment. Per. You can get it. Um, TLDR. TLDR. <laughs> and so that was just like a hugely like transformative experience for me. Like also as a black Muslim woman trying to gain political language, like, right, like I was young, I was 20 years old doing these <laughs> right interviews, like had only known Northeast Ohio and New Hampshire as my geographies and locations. And so that was just like hugely transformative. And like, I was so grateful for the communities and the women that like opened up and shared those knowledge, helped me name it. <laughs> and then that took me to the UK, where I did some research on Muslim women and feminist organizations. At the same time, I was also working for a Muslim women's lifestyle magazine. So thinking about like not just how these questions about gender and race translate in like scholarly and academic ways, but like also in like deeply digestible, like lifestyle ways. Like I always say it was like 
no, I won't say that. I was going to say it was like the Muslim version of InStyle, but it was 100% like more deeper and richer than that. No offense to InStyle, but like we had deep things, deep things, talking about deep things and race. For example, like I remember the first issue that I worked on, we had Suad Abdul-Kabir and Mariam Kashani on the cover and it was about race in the Ummah and actually so crazy. Fast forward like eight years later, I'm sitting in a class where being co-taught by Suad Abdul-Kabir and Mariam Kashani is visiting. And it's, so it's just, for me, it's like, I've, I feel like I've had like all of these full circle moments that have like brought me here where I am and like what I've done. And I, it's just, you know, it's just so, it's so deeply personal for me. Do you know what we call that folks? What? Finding your purpose. Oh, thanks, honey. I actually have had so many full circle moments in the past year that are, they just, Every time another one happens, I laugh a little bit because I'm like, I come to expect them now. I had a similar one where a professor I work with closely here, Professor Matthew Jacobson, just Matt, I found an old research proposal from Dartmouth and it was a sociology class because I felt so misplaced in the history department, mm-hmm. but also misplaced for sociology because I didn't have mm-hmm. access to methodologies that I felt matched what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So I knew I just needed some art. And okay, of course, American studies and a lot of other things. But in my bibliography of that research proposal I did for that class, Mm -hmm. I found this last week at home while I was on break. I saw he was the first citation. Mm -hmm. And now I'm here at Yale working with him. And I'm like, and he went to the same college as my advisor at Dartmouth. Wow. In Colorado. Wow. Amazing. Like beautiful things. How life comes full circle. And honestly, recording this episode today is Exactly what I mean, a full circle moment. So on that note, Iman, please tell us, what is your favorite episode that you recorded? And what was that experience like? And why do you like that episode? Oh, my gosh. So I have two. (laughs) And I'll be quick. Okay, so I loved our episode on the erotic by Audre Lorde because it forced us to really get deep and to reflect on our relationships with ourselves and then connect that to this larger political argument she's making about our relationship to ourselves and transforming the self and doing what feels right, not just what you're told is right and what the world tells us as right. So I love that episode. And second, I really love the episode of Christina Sharp's term, The Wake. We talk about the Clotilda, the last known slave ship. It's rediscovery in 2019. And yeah, so those are my those are my two. Good answers. And they slightly vary from mine. Oh my God. Hell yeah. That's exciting. I'm actually really interested to know what your favorite. I think I have. You tell me. I'm gonna say think if I guessed right. I think you will have guessed right. Yeah. Definitely sisterhood. (laughs) Safe harbors, Toni Morrison. Right. I love what we did there with, first of all, Iman's little sister came to record with us. And that was very special because we're really looking forward to incorporating even more friends and family. Mm -hmm. And connecting with, even though obviously Kohar and I are millennials and not that old, but like we're really looking forward to connecting with the generation below us and Gen Z. I have my half-baked thought. I'll come to that next. Yeah. So basically, that episode for me was so special because we are able to incorporate the words of our siblings. Mm. And it just felt like so meaningful mm. that we allowed that dialogue to happen. Yeah. And last but not least, the hair episode. Mm. 
I think it was a challenge for me to record that because I think, as we know, hair is this thing, (laughs) this topic that is highly politicized, especially for black women. And I think the challenge of that episode also was a learning moment. And Mm -hmm. I enjoyed, I always, I think the turnaround and the experience of getting through, like we're doing right now, an episode, it always feels so good to get to the end. Yeah. So that's my answer. That is actually different from what I thought you were going to say. What did you think I was going to say? I thought, you know, you're such a music person. Kohar tells me all the time. I'll never forget. She's like, I, what do you say? See, I, I forgot. Hear in color. I, yes. Yes. No, that is yes. a, for, a foreign experience. They might call it synesthesia. I don't, I don't know what the reality of it actually is, but I think I see, feel, I feel in color for sure. Like yeah. I see color with my third eye. Yeah. So because of that, I thought you were going to say our Audiotopia episode. That's in there. Yeah. I honestly just temporarily forgot because they're all so good. <laughs> <laughs> so for our last question for TLDR, I want to know what you're most looking forward to in season two. Amazing. I just can't wait to speak even more closely and directly to our listeners and to mm-hmm. get to know everyone else because I think we've been putting energy out every time we record together Mm -hmm. but of course in just the past two days we've been able to just absorb all the energy back even just a fraction of it Mm -hmm. I'm so looking forward to seeing how that grows and evolves and honestly hearing about what you all want to learn about the big ideas that keep Mm -hmm. you excited and what it is you want to learn more about us and how we can help you survive through grad school, through life, through this hellscape of 2023 in this ongoing pandemic. We Mm -hmm. need each other and Mm -hmm. we're here for you. Yeah. And literally same. I'm looking forward to like, obviously this episode is a dialogue between Kohar and I, but I literally want this to be a dialogue between us and the community that we're creating. So we are going to get out of here with our final segment. And it very well might be my funnest segment because I love talking ish. And that is Half Baked, which is the segment of the show where we share ideas that we haven't fully fleshed out, but stand behind. So what's your half baked thought, girly? I just told you I had ah, a light bulb moment that I say this all the time and I'm going to connect with our listeners. I believe that I'm a zillennial (laughs) because I was born on the last day of 95 your baby. I know I'm like a millennial too. I believe I am. But a lot of millennials tell me I'm not because they tell me I'm young. And I do also have friends that I would consider Gen Z. Mm -hmm. But I think I'm that in-between category that, okay, this is the controversial part. I say this. I don't mean like I, I invented you, but I believe because I was in that first cohort, that generation of millennials, that I kind of like made Gen Z. I agree with you for two reasons. One, you were a directioner, so I'm just going to put you as a zillennial. Number two, I do not know anyone who is like a magnet to Gen Z people. Our friends and I refer to Kohar's band of followers as Gen Coco. What? Is that what that means? What? Gen Coco? Yeah, Gen Coco. Generation Coco. I just... I didn't even know that. That's so funny. We've been saying this for years. Well, my point is that because of One Direction and I grew up on the internet, I feel like I have complete Gen Z, you know, energy at times and millennial because I like the Backstreet Boys. That's my half-big thought. And I am dying to hear yours, Yvonne. Okay. 
like I said, I haven't fully fleshed this out, but okay. So you know how there's the word copaganda, you know how like all cable TV is copaganda. Like I won't even say the names cause I don't want us to get flagged for anything, but you look at cable news and it's all detective shows. It's all copaganda. The Harry Styles movie, oh. Kohar and I have been debating on this. <laughs> We're not, <laughs> we won't go there. Anyways. Everything is filled with propaganda. I want a word, and you guys can comment, slide in our DMs. I want a word for the genre of videos and content series, whatever, docuseries that are coming out on streaming platforms that are designed for us to, like, feel bad for the 1% of the 1%. I'm talking about the stuff on the Kardashians. I'm talking about the Hillary Clinton documentary series, whatever. Talking about the Harry and Meghan stuff. I have a lot to say on the Harry and Meghan stuff, but everybody, Mm. everybody has a lot. But what I will say is what so disturbed me about the one episode I watched of the Harry and Meghan stuff was the fact that it was only her black mother was the only person of color in all of the confessionals. Her entire team was white. Even the head of her foundation is a white man who was on there talking about he didn't know about race until X, Y, and Z happened. And so it's like, right, there's this facade that is supposed to be giving us this look into racism and colonialism and whatnot. And it just all just feels such like a dupe. And it's like, I'm supposed to feel bad for you all as you're sitting in houses that look Unreal. So basically, I want like what is the word celebaganda? No, uh, one person. I was pers- gonna say is. I feel like it's just good celebaganda. old Good old propaganda. Good old propaganda. But like a specific genre, subgenre. Yeah, I hear you. A subgenre of that because it is like literally, it is just disturbing me. I'm supposed to feel bad for Khloe Kardashian as she buys goes to Martha Stewart to buy peacocks, <laughs> which I- reveals I did watch it. But <laughs> well. Iman, on that note, yeah. you should write an op-ed. That's my last topic thought <laughs> and a look into the future. So excited. Well, I got to pass my exam, so I don't got time to write any op-eds. <laughs> I hear you, girl. <laughs> and on that note, we are out of here. Thank you all so much for tuning in to our first episode ever. And you can find us on social media at Name It Pod and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Please rate and review this episode. Tell us what you liked and what you want to hear more of. Or comment a big idea that you want us to take on. You can catch the articles we reference and additional sources in our show notes and on our Instagram page. And on our website. Coming soon. Mm-hmm. Well, out by the time y'all hear this. And last but not least, share with a friend. Share with your grandma. Share with your mom. Share with your auntie. And like I'm going to keep saying, you should make an episode a requirement for your Tinder dates. Like be like, okay, before I go out on a date with you, you need to listen to the episode of The Erotic or Safe Harbors. I'm just giving you all ideas. Half-baked thought. That's Good. that's another half-baked thought. But also, too, we want to say thank you to the Porvu Center for Teaching and Learning and Public Humanities at Yale for giving us resources that help make this conversation possible today. All right. Peace out. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.